Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, we are shown that the sanctification process is a necessary part of the Christian life. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, The Necessity of Sanctification. chapter 6. Let's read the passage, and I'm going to read the whole chapter again. I'm trying to get this language in our heads, in our brains. Please be reading it through the week um, so that we get this language in us uh, and such. And so I want to read through it, try to emphasize kind of what's happening here, and then we'll look and see uh, what we're going to study today. So beginning in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? so that grace may increase. It may never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Please bow with me. Our sovereign and glorious God, Lord, you who are enthroned in the cherubim, you 
to whom all worship and adoration in heaven is being offered. There is never a silent moment in the cosmos where there is not rapturous worship being offered up to you that angels around your throne, the redeemed gathered around your throne are joyfully in ecstasy, rejoicing in your glory, your greatness. It is their delight to herald your praises. And God, we want to join in them, join with them this morning. Father, we are longing for the day when all of the cosmos gives you the glory that you're worthy of. And Father, we know that the day is going to come on this earth when every single soul is going to bow, is going to confess Jesus as Lord, and is going to give praise to you in one way or the other. Father, we know we are a part of this process where you are drawing all to yourself. And God, it is our great delight that this morning we're gathered together in anticipation of what will come. And Father, we want our lives to be in submission to you. We want our lives to be a great offering of worship. We want you to be pleased and we want to be useful in bringing the message of your greatness, the message of salvation in Christ to the ends of the earth. And Lord, we know we are working towards that day when you bring all things to their right conclusion. And so, Father, as we bear all of this in mind, and as we're a part of this, Father, help us right now, O God, to give you the worship of submissive hearts that long to obey you, and God, that we would be transformed even right now, that there would be the molding, the conforming, the renewing, the sanctification, O Lord, that takes place when we look at your word, Father, that you'll accomplish that now and then you send us out into the world to live as missionaries, to live as those following Christ and making your glory known. So please, God, we pray, accomplish all of that. Father, what happens here, it's bigger than just what happens in this moment. It's bigger than just whether or not we feel good when we leave. We're a part of your big story. So Father, please bring this about. Father, I pray that you would protect this time. You'd send your spirit. You would quicken and awaken and enable and bless and pierce and cut and slash and hammer all the things you do with your word that you would bring change to your people and then those in the room that have not yet trusted Christ. Lord, that this would be the day that you draw them to yourself. Everything that needs to happen, please bring it about. Have mercy on me to preach. Bless all of us, O oh God, to worship by hearing and receiving with faith and heeding and a mind to repent and, and, and obey, O oh God. Bring it about, we pray. And we ask all these things through Christ. Amen. When we picture our Christian life, we have to make sure we have the right metaphors in our brains. See, it's one of the realities um, in, when it comes to understanding God's word and then, of course, when it comes to teaching, if you're engaged in that, we cannot just use any old illustration that our mind comes up with because sometimes an illustration would lead to the wrong conclusions. There are bad illustrations, as a for instance, when it comes to understanding the Trinity. Have you ever heard the illustration? Okay, now I'm about to tell you this is a bad illustration, okay? Have you ever heard the illustration that God is like water? 
Okay? Water can be a solid, a liquid, or a gas, just like God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Have you, have you ever heard that illustration? If you have, trash it, okay? That is heresy. That is a heretical view from history called modalism that we have condemned long ago. The bad illustration leads you to a wrong conclusion about God, okay? It's not that God is sometimes like a father, sometimes like a son, and sometimes like a spirit. No, there are three persons united as one God. The point is, you have to have the right metaphor or you're going to come to wrong conclusions. Many, many have the metaphor in their minds when it comes to salvation that are wrong, there are a lot of wrong ideas out there about what it means to be in Christ and what God is doing in the start to finish. Many people have the metaphor in their minds that salvation is like getting a ticket to heaven. I even knew a church that actually did give out little tickets. It was like a track that they gave out. They would share the gospel with somebody. If you prayed and said the magic words, Here's your ticket. And they'd say something like, you got it. Don't lose it. <laughs> you know, and whatever happens, no, doesn't matter what you do from here on out, you got your ticket to heaven. That's a wrong metaphor. That's a misunderstanding of salvation. The metaphors that the Bible uses, obviously, are the divinely inspired metaphors. When, when Jesus uses the metaphor of that our salvation, listen, from start to finish is like running a race. Or think of Jesus whenever he said, strive to enter through the narrow gate. So he gave the, the metaphor of a journey like Pilgrim's Progress. These are the kinds of metaphors we have to have in our brains. And so it's not the case that our salvation is like that when you turn to Christ, God closes the book, looks in you and goes, okay, that's all I want. Uh, just carry on, do whatever you please. I mean, try not to kill anybody and, you know, do some good stuff, but, but we're done here. I'll see you in a few years when you come to heaven. That's not the metaphor. That's not the picture of the reality. Or consider Jesus's illustration that salvation is like being transformed from a thistle into a grapevine and grapevines produce grapes. So once you become a Christian through justification, now we have this process we're living out that is a part of the overall thing that God is doing. We are to bear fruit unto God because grapevines produce grapes. We gotta have the right metaphor. And so understand this, Christian. The enemy of your soul is actively working to try to bring confusion to everything, but especially the gospel. He's trying to bring wrong metaphors. He's trying to bring misunderstandings because the word of God is key. The Bible shows that all heresy and even smaller errors, they are what God calls doctrines of demons. Throughout history, we've battled hundreds upon hundreds of errors and then larger heresies. And there are some particular errors that are prevalent in this current culture. And it leads to wasted lives, robbed opportunities, and listen, errors that exist even amongst Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, truly justified Christians. Being right with Christ doesn't mean we get everything perfect. There are inevitable errors in our thinking, but we notice that in our culture, there are some particular ones when it comes to 
how sanctification fits in with God's will for your life, with this overall salvation that God is working. And so part of what I want to do is continue to introduce this doctrine, this subject of sanctification and try to make sure that we think about it in the right ways. So if you've not been with us thus far in our study through Romans, the first 11 chapters of the book are laid out as a, as a logical argument where the depths of the gospel are shown. The first five chapters have all been about one primary doctrine, one great subject, the doctrine of justification. What God began was starting off by showing our absolute desperate need. You are desperately in need of something because we have sinned against a holy God who will not let sin come near him. We've defiled ourselves by our evil. There is a uncleanness inside of us. And then there is a kingdom of heaven to come. And God's not letting any unclean thing, nothing defiled enter that kingdom. You and I deserve wrath. We have a desperate need. But God in mercy designed a way for us to be saved out of the wrath that we deserve. To be brought to be right with him. That plan is his son. Anyone who will turn from rebellion trust in Christ will be saved. And the word there is justified. You will be in an instant made right with God. Justification happens in a moment. One second, you're not right with God. The next instant, you are forgiven of your sins. You're cleared of all charges, justified and promised eternal life. So the first five chapters was showing us justification, how it happens, uh, how did God accomplish it, how do we get it, here are the glorious ramifications of it, chapter 5. And then now chapter 6 is continuing to argue and show us the full extents of the gospel, and we begin a new doctrine, a new subject. For the Christian, it's what happens after justification until we come to that last moment when we walk into glory, having been made completely new. Glorification is the end. Justification is the beginning of that moment that you become right with God. And what happens in between is this thing that the Bible calls sanctification. It uses other words as well. Last Sunday, we saw words like transformed, God is renewing his people. God is changing his people. God is molding us into the image of Christ. All of it means the same thing. God is bringing real and practical growth in Christ, growth in holiness. And that's what this process of sanctification is. But there is a great deal of misunderstanding about it. So for the second Sunday here, continuing to do some introduction because I'm just determined that by the time we, we end chapter six, all of us, okay, we know it. We understand it. We get it. We don't have the, the wrong kinds of ideas about it. So what I want to do this week is I've got two primary truths that I want to show you. So two bigger truths and then about a thousand smaller truths underneath it. The first one is the necessity of sanctification. And then secondly, we're going to ask the question, how does it happen? If God expects this, then how do we go about doing it? So let's begin with this one. Number one, the necessity of sanctification. Now I want to tell you from the beginning, 
This one could prove to be a controversial sermon. Some of the things that we're going to look at, I'm going to tell you, amongst some, depending on your background and maybe what kind of church you went to in times past, this could be unsettling. It's one of the things that we keep finding is when we come to some of these truths that the Bible teaches, some people rile up, bristle up and be like, that's not very Christ-like of you, Jesus, okay? Misunderstandings that come because of difficulties and such. And so I I just want to, from the beginning, just sort of lay it out there. It very well could be that some of this unsettles you, but what I ask you to do is don't make a snap judgment and say things like, well, that's not how I was taught or that's not how I was raised. Always remember, you could have been taught by monkeys or Satanists, okay? Just because you were taught a certain way doesn't mean that it's correct. All that matters is what does the word of God say? I want to show you what the word of God says, but it is unsettling for certain ways that some have had the gospel and the Christian life explained to them. We are largely combating the erroneous belief that chapter six, verse one introduces us to. The fact that we're saved by grace and not by works, does that mean that once I'm saved, I can do whatever I want? Can I live as I please once I am confident that I am justified, once I've been made right with God. And so I have just a simple truth here in the first point, but it's sometimes the ramifications that come out of it that unsettle some. So here's the simple truth. You must be sanctified. That's the truth. You must be sanctified. God always sanctifies the man that he justifies. Sanctification will always follow justification. If you have been brought to Christ, then there is work that God is going to continue to do. There is a route that we must travel to the heavenly city. It passes through a land called sanctification. So let me show this to you in some of the places and deal with some of the ramifications and such. So you're in chapter six, look at verse 22 there. And notice what he says uh, in that passage. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Do you see already off the bat that it, it, it seems, we'll just use that word for now, it seems that the Bible is saying sanctification is a necessary process that comes before final salvation. Let me show you some more. If you'll flip with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. I am going to go kind of quickly here. 2.13, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So remember last Sunday, we saw that in the Bible, the word salvation and saved is used in different ways. Sometimes it refers to the whole process from eternity past when God predestined all the way to final glorification. Think of it as the whole thing. But the Bible will also use the word saved sometimes to refer to your justification. We saw a passage where it talked about being saved in our sanctification And this passage is using it as the final salvation. And so what it shows is this. The Bible is showing your final salvation will come through 
sanctification. So what if there's a Christian who says, well, I want like, I want eternal life, but I don't want to mess with this whole following Jesus thing. Can I have that version? And what Jesus says is that door does not exist. That is a false gospel. That is not a true Christianity. The only gospel that exists is the gospel that calls us to repent and believe. And a gospel without repentance that says, I want heaven, but without obedience means the person cannot genuinely turn to Christ. If a man is justified, he will be worked on by God by necessity after this. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, you could turn there. I'm just going to read it real quick. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 1, he says, here's who I'm writing to. I'm writing to you aliens, so you Christian pilgrims living in the world who have been chosen by God. And then verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to, here's what we're saved to, we're called to, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. The sanctifying work of the Spirit, this process of being changed, it is part of the overall process of our salvation. Now, there's all kinds of misunderstandings that can come out of this. And this is where some of the unsettling parts, some, sometimes people get out their pitchforks and light their torches. Do not misunderstand this. The thief on the cross who turned to trust in Christ just minutes before he died, didn't have time to go be baptized, didn't have time to go live a life of increasing obedience or any of these kinds of things. And yet when he died, where did he go? He was brought to paradise that day. So we have to understand here what is being said. But what the Bible shows is, in whatever time we have left on this earth, apple trees produce apples. Grapevines produce grapes. If you have been made into an apple tree by transformation, by the work of conversion, we will bear that fruit. We will show our salvation. So here's a question that some might ask. Pastor, are you saying that, that it would be possible for a man to be born again and then truly justified? But then if he lives in rebellion to God, are you saying that that man would not go to heaven? Well, not at all. What the Bible is showing is the man who has truly been born again, trusted in Christ to be sanctified, has been changed to the core. He has the Holy Spirit indwelling him. Jesus has made this man his project. It is impossible for those forces to be at work and for there not to be something that shows, for there not to be change that comes. You cannot be changed internally without it demonstrating itself externally. Jesus shows us that this is the identifying marker of his true people. The truly justified man will be sanctified. God elects in eternity past. God comes and calls a person to himself. They believe and are justified. And God doesn't say, okay, we're done now. No, God continues his work of transformation, bringing us safely to the day that we walk into glory. But we do have to have the right understanding about what I am called to and what God expects me to be engaging in, in this process here. The true Christian will be marked by growth. Let me, let, me, um, let me make eight statements here to help us. 
And then we're going to work through some passages here. So I'm going to make eight statements that are from the Bible uh, that we need to see. So here they are. Number one, you are not saved by works. Number two, but the truly saved man will be changed by the power of God and therefore will go do good works. Number three, these good works do not produce justification. His justification is what produces the good works and it shows that he is in Christ. Number four, God takes every justified Christian and makes them his project And so they will be sanctified, bringing progress in however much time they have here on earth. Number five. Now here's where we start to get into some of the controversial things. Number five. This helps us understand why the Bible shows sanctification is not optional. It is the land we must travel through. And then number six. This is why the Bible says that the true Christian will persevere to the end. Number seven, this means that the man who leaves Christ will not finally be saved because it shows he was never truly in Christ. And number eight, believing this does not contradict the truth that those who are truly in Christ will never lose their salvation. Let's look through some passages and I want to show you this kind of language coming out of the Bible. So here's the first passage we'll start with. If you look at uh, Matthew chapter seven for a moment. In Matthew chapter seven, Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with these these really bold calls uh, to repentance and to follow him. You'll notice in verse 13 that Jesus uses the metaphor of enter through the narrow gate. Okay, so he's given the metaphor of a journey kind of the language of come follow me. But now notice verse 16. Here's kind of the first working metaphor that we need to see. Verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Here's the truth stated basically just as plainly as possible. God takes thistles and transforms them by conversion to become grapevines. And grapevines produce grapes. God takes us who were once living in rebellion, separated from him through conversion, so the new birth and justification, he transforms us to become grapevines. That we become this plant. Then by necessity, we will bear fruit. That's the basic truth. But it's when it starts to get applied to the Christian that some start to, some of the confusion can start to come. These grapevine believers will produce grapes. They will produce good works. They will bear fruit unto God. They will do that. And it's when we say that It's when we say that Christians will produce good works that there's always this group out there. They have their pitchforks ready. They light their torches anytime somebody uses the word obligation, requirement, or you must. They light their torches and then start chanting death to the legalist. When all we're doing is saying, look what Jesus is saying here. Look what Jesus is showing But all that helps us understand the next passages we'll look at. So you're in Matthew, jump to chapter 10 for a moment. Look at verse 22. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one 
who has endured till the end who will be saved. That statement is repeated several times in the gospel. Now, it's important that we understand this. Endurance, perseverance as a Christian does not earn you eternal life. Rather, it is that when God comes and justifies and changes us, here's the marker of the one who has truly been justified. They will continue to the end, not in perfection, not in sinlessness, but there will be a perseverance in the faith. But what part of what we have to see here is this. The Bible is showing that the man who walks away from Christ will not finally be saved. Not because he lost his salvation, but God shows us this is the identifier of those who are truly in Christ. More language like that is used all through the New Testament. If you'll jump back to the book of Romans with me for a second. In Romans chapter 8, notice a theme that comes up in the New Testament that we call the conditional if. Romans 8, find verse 13. Look what it says. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. There's already a statement. But then continue. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How do, we, how do we know those who are going to live? How do we know those who are truly in Christ? They're the ones putting to death the deeds of the body. It is not dying to sin that earns you eternal life, but this is an identifier of the true people of God. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. How do we know who the true sons and daughters of God are? They're the ones being led by the Spirit. Jump to verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You who are in Christ, you are heirs with Christ. But now read the rest of the verse. If, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we also may be glorified with him. Uh, jump to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter one. Find verse 21 there, speaking to you Christians of the glory of our salvation and what God has done for us. Verse 21, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. The same language is used all through the book of Hebrews. We can flip there for a moment. Hebrews chapter three, verse six. And yes, I am kind of trying to make a point also by the overwhelming amount of these verses that this is not a fluke. This is a consistent theme that runs through the scripture. Hebrews 3, verse 6, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we, we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Verse 14 of the same chapter, For we, are partakers of Christ, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So notice what is being made clear here. It is not that the holding fast and the, your continuance is you're earning points with God and somehow you're going to earn your way into heaven. 
Not at all. If at any point in this process, if you have truly been justified, you die. If it's five seconds after you turn to Christ, you will be brought into the kingdom. And this continuing is not about perfection or some standard of like, you got to be above this level to get it into heaven. It's not about that. It's about apple trees produce apples. A Christian has been made into a new creature. You are all new creations in Christ Jesus. You who have uh, come to Christ and those new creations live in a new kind of way. We live patterns and sanctification, this process of obedience and growing in Christ is part of it. Every truly justified believer will continue, not without bumps, not without moments of stupidity, maybe even not without a season or two of stupidity, like David, like Peter. Always take comfort from those kinds of things. When we have those moments where you fall to a sin, don't let your mind and your heart go to this place, oh, I must not be saved. That's not the conclusion we're supposed to come to. But true believers repent and continue on. Peter messed up real big and then he repented. True believers always come back. David lived what we believe to be more than a year away from the Lord in a rebellious season. But true believers repent. True believers come back to walk with Christ and to make progress in this. And so what the Bible is saying is that apple trees produce apples. But there's an error out there that says, if you say a Christian has to produce good works or live in this way, then you're saying salvation is by works. And the answer is no, it's simply saying what the Bible is saying. God takes thorn bushes, turns them into apple trees and the apple trees produce apples. God takes dead sinners, regenerates us, makes us into new creatures. And then we live out what it means to be a new creature. When the Bible shows that sanctification is a necessity, it is not saying that you're saved by works and it's also not saying that you can lose your salvation. But what it does mean is that God has expectations for us. It does mean that we are to think of our Christian life as having requirements. Listen to me very carefully. You have the obligation to obey Jesus as Lord. But it's when we use the word obligation that some revolt. Don't revolt. Embrace it. We are called to obey Christ, walk with Christ, grow in Christ. This is part of what he is doing in our lives. Think about the way that Jesus preached the gospel again and again. When he called people to himself, what did he say? Yes, it is the case. We have, you know, what, 30 to 40 places that Jesus said, believe and you will have eternal life. Speaking of justification. But almost just as much, when he would preach the gospel, he would say things like, come follow me. Come follow me. Well, what is that? Is that justification or sanctification? He's speaking of the whole thing there. The first moment that you turn to Christ, that's justification the continuation of following him, that's sanctification. 
Or Jesus saying, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Is that justification or is that sanctification? He's speaking of both. You getting on the trail, that's whenever your journey begins. But he calls us to continue. Jesus said things like no one who puts their hand to the plow and then looks back like Lot's wife is able to be my disciple. See the point that if a man would come to Jesus and say, well, I want to be saved, but I don't want any of this obedience stuff. What would Jesus have responded? Probably something like get behind me, Satan. And so see this conclusion. There is no, if there is no sanctification, then there has been no justification. To truly be changed by God means that there will be change in the life. And so what we are combating, we are combating all of these errors from history. We talked about the libertines and the antinomians. There's more. There's the easy believism. Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke of the, the cheap grace or the just pray this little prayer, say the magic words, have a moment of faith kind of false gospel. No, God calls us to more than that. He says, come follow me. We are made right with him in a moment. But he is calling us and there is the expectation that we will walk with him in sanctification. And so all through the New Testament, there is the combating of this error that once I turn to Jesus, I can live as I please. It's an error. It's all the way through. I haven't even looked at half of the passages that the New Testament brings up about this subject. God calls you and I as a part of his overall work that we be sanctified. So here's number two, second point that we're looking at this morning. If this is God's will for us, if this is a part of what he's doing, if we are called to this, then how does it happen? If I am to be sanctified, how do I go about doing that? So it's a major point to see already. It is critically important that we understand how it happens. Because once again, if we misunderstand how it happens, we'll go try to do it ourselves, fail, and then need a little talking to like God gave the Galatians. Flip to Galatians for just a moment there. Galatians chapter three. If you remember the great error had come into the Galatians church, they had moved away from the understanding that we're made right with God by faith and they had started to believe it's by works. And we've often talked about the fact that they were misunderstanding what it means to turn to Christ to be justified by faith, but also notice there's more. Galatians 3, look at verse 3, look what he says. Are you so foolish? Uh, by the way, just as a humorous aside, that's where we get our English word for idiot there in the Greek. Are you so idiotic? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected? By the flesh. What is he saying? He is saying you are sanctified the same way you are justified. Here's the scenario. Here's, here's how it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen that you turn to Christ and you're saved by God's grace through faith. Faith being the critical, not by works, by faith. But then the rest of your Christian life, you're sanctified by works. That's not how it happens. You are justified by God's grace through faith. And we are also sanctified by God's grace through faith. Now that can be 
confusing because justification is a moment. And, and it's a lot easier, I think, at least in my puny brain, to understand justification. Okay, I turn to Christ by faith in a moment. I'm made right with God. But then sanctification is this long process. So how am I sanctified by faith? Well, when we look at the rest of the New Testament and how it happens, I think this will help. So Romans 12, verse 2, you could, you could turn there if you want, but I'm just going to tell you what it says here. Romans 12, 2, there is the command to go be sanctified. He says, be transformed. And then he tells us how. Be transformed by, what is it? Is it works? Go be transformed by your works? No. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And so here's what that means. Sanctification begins internally. It is internal transformation that then makes its way outward. It starts with faith. We engage with the word of God in all of the many different ways that we worship, that we engage with God through his word. We engage with the word, we believe the word, and it causes changes inside. And when things change inside, they will then change outside. You and I live in our behavior. We act, we speak, we talk, we do as an overflow of who we are internally. And so what God shows us is that the transformation begins inside and makes its way outside in our actions. The heart of man is what produces everything he does. God works his sanctification first in the heart, and then it shows itself by the fruit that's coming out of it. Um, let me show you a passage that makes this clearer. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. So you got 2 Thessalonians 2.13. We looked at a little bit ago. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, two great sanctification verses. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Look what it says. So here's Paul addressing these, these believers living there in Thessalonica. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And now watch this last phrase, which also performs its work in you who believe. The word performs its work in you. The word of God is at work inside the Christian. Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing, it's cutting, it's slashing, it's showing, it's exposing, it's convicting, it's inspiring, it's doing all of these internal things that God is doing. The word of God, in every way that we engage with it, and God has given many of those ways, every way that we worship, every way that we worship privately, as families, or corporately as a church family, every way that we worship somehow is bringing truths of God to us in a unique way and it is then working on us inside. When we take the Lord's Supper, there is a unique way we are engaging with the gospel and the gospel is being preached and internally the word of God is doing what the word of God does. When we sing hymns together, by singing these, these worship songs together, that is a unique way that the truths of God are coming to 
to bear on us. It's bringing change. When you're driving down the road, listening to your Christian radio station and you're singing along to these songs, the word of God is hacking and slashing and convicting and encouraging. It's bringing internal change. When you wake up tomorrow morning and read the Bible before you go to work, whenever you sit here under preaching and teaching, whenever you're having a conversation with a Christian friend, all of these things are ways that the word of God comes to bear on us and it changes how we think, changes how we feel, changes what we love. And you change us inside, we will be changed outside. Sanctification is God transforming the inner man. The outer man is decaying. The beards are graying, but the inner man is being transformed. Every way that we engage with the word is doing this. So here's a principle, biblical principle. Worship transforms us. Worship transforms us. It is critical that we know how it happens. Because if you and I set out thinking that sanctification will happen by my works and I'm totally trusting myself, I'm going to fail. We have to know how it happens. How are we changed? Worship transforms us. It's a principle from the Old Testament that we see in the prophets. When, when the people would worship false idols, what do the prophets say? The people become like their idols. When we worship the living God, we become like him. And then big new covenant, big realization. When you and I worship Christ, Christ is formed in us. That's biblical language. Christ is formed in us, meaning our character is becoming more and more like Jesus. The outer man decaying, inner man is being renewed. We are being molded and shaped by the potter into the image of Christ. God is at work in you and we participate in it. Now, let me say that one again, because this is another big point. God is at work in you and we participate in it. This is why some have coined phrases like, how are we sanctified? Grace and sweat, or even just holy sweat. It is God at work in us and we participate. Now, what does that look like though? Like, how does it happen? Let me take you to another passage. Romans chapter 15, if you will. Romans 15, find verse five. Look what we see here. Romans 15, five. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Now think about that phrase there. The God who gives perseverance and encouragement. If you were encouraged, how did it happen? Well, there are a lot of different ways we can be encouraged, I mean, a lot of different means that it takes place. It might be that you were reading your Bible and a certain passage just really stirred in your soul. It might be you were reading a good Christian book, listening to a certain hymn or a Christian friend called you up out of the blue and man just had like the right thing to say at the right time. And here's the point. It might not seem like God had anything to do with it because it came from these human sources. 
here's what the Bible is showing. God had everything to do with it. That Christian friend who calls you up out of the blue, speaks words at just the right time, gives you what you need to stir your soul. We do not immediately see that this is God at work, but what we're shown is, the Bible's always showing us what's happening that we can't see. What's happening in the heavenly realms that these eyes cannot see. That behind the scenes, God is orchestrating events. God is stirring the hearts of his people. Why did that Christian friend call you out of the blue? Because the same spirit that indwells you indwells them. And God is working on his people and he's using his people in the process. It sometimes is sort of like this mind-blowing realization that one of the greatest ways we are sanctified is by you and I at work in one another's lives. That whenever the Bible says that all of us have these different gifts and when we're using them to serve one another, we are being sanctified and God is doing it, but he's using his people. It's the great mystery over and over again. How is God at work and we are at work? That's the mystery. First Corinthians 15, 10 says this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is Paul talking. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. It almost sounds like Paul's a little confused there whenever he talks like that. He's not, but he's showing this realization of the mystery. How did Paul get to be Paul? He even says there, the context is, when he says, I labored more than all of them, he says, I worked harder than the other apostles. He doesn't say it arrogantly, but it is a realization. He said, I worked harder than the other apostles, but it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. Yet not I, but the grace of God working in me and through me. It's the great mystery. Even whenever you and I have accomplished some good deed, the grace of God has been at work in us. Sanctification is God at work in you. And we are participating. We're acting. We're obeying. We're fighting. And we could miss the fact that God is at work. He's empowering. He's influencing. He's urging. He's pressing. He's whispering thoughts. Every single moment, God is at work urging us, in, in, encouraging us, inspiring us on to sanctification. The Bible also shows that we can grieve the Spirit. We can resist the Spirit. We can cooperate and run hard in it, or we can drag our heels. One way or the other, some sanctification is happening but the great encouragement of scripture is, let's run and work hard in it. Because in the end, your stupid money will burn and nobody will care about your work achievements. Sports trophies will be forgotten. And all that matters is the fruit we bear unto God. Let's care about the things that will still matter 10,000 years from now and forget about the things that won't matter in just the short little while when you pass into glory. This is what we are called to. God is at work in us. God is sending sanctifying influences in a number of different ways. It comes through the obvious ways like show up to church. There's really obvious, but it's also in a lot of the other things. It's also in that slow driver in front of you who you wish would speed up. God is sanctifying you. 
Listen, God is custom building, tailor making circumstances to send into your life in his infinite wisdom to give to us for our sanctification. He is custom building trials. You can be assured if you go through suffering, your God has been a part of it. He has tailor-made this trial for you, but it's not just trials. It's also the encouragements that come. By the way, you know, we sometimes joke, if you want to really believe the power of prayer, pray for patience. Let me tell you another one. Pray for encouragement. Watch what happens. God is tailor-making grace to send to you in both hard things and joyful things, in both the days that you can't wipe the smile off your face and then the days you can't make the tears stop. He's at work in us, convicting, encouraging, bringing us along. He is sending influences. He also encourages us in those ways that we know we ought to be working hard in. Knowing that God is at work does not give us license for laziness, does not give us license to sit back on the couch and use all of those really spiritual sounding excuses of things like, I just take it one day at a time, leave it up to him. You know, I'm not gonna work hard. He just does what he does. All right, you're choosing a wasted life, okay? He calls us work hard, go hard. This matters, go at it. And the more we pursue it, the more progress we will make. It is just a reality. At the end of it all, we could have made a lot of progress or we can make little progress. The encouragement is don't you want great progress? And hear this because I I find this to be one of the lies that Satan has been successful in amongst Christians. It is not automatic that you are going to use your life well. It is not automatic. It is not guaranteed that you are going to walk into the great and glorious will of God for your life, of the opportunities you could have taken. It's not automatic that you're going to serve in the ministry that God wanted you to serve in. We can resist, we can grieve the spirit. That's why that language is there in the New Testament. And don't you just find that it is just this common Christian misunderstanding, this idea that it doesn't matter what I do, I'm gonna gloriously walk into the the great plan of God for my life. No, you can miss it, the revealed will. Of course, there's the mystery of God's secret will that he is still working all things. We leave the secret things to him, but what we are called to is to go hard. We gotta die to the idea that we're gonna come to greatness without great effort. We gotta die to the idea that we're, it's all just gonna be automatic. He calls us to go hard. He calls us to run. You guys who played sports, did you ever have one of those teammates who did nothing the entire off season and then a week before practice starts, then they rush to get in the gym, but by then it's, too late. And so they're on the team, or at least in my school I went to, it was so small. If you went out for the team, you made the team, but you're on the bench. We can miss the opportunities that God lays before us. Second Corinthians 3 shows it is possible to be a Christian, come to the end, but have lived a disappointing life. 
So here's, here's the call. Don't do it. Run. Run the race. Go hard. Let's press on. It's not automatic. We must give ourselves to this. This is God's will for your life, your sanctification. So Christians, see God's expectations for us, but also all of God's expectations are for our ultimate joy. Your holiness is your everlasting happiness. The, The great delight, the great reward, and the great thing that will matter in the end is the fruit we bear to God while the money burns. See the glory of this call. See the joy that God lays before us. See the how, and let's use our lives for what matters. For you who have not yet turned to Christ, for you who have not yet come to him, Jesus calls out to you, come follow me. The the assurance that the Bible gives is the very first moment you turn in your heart and you trust Christ, calling out to him, pleading with him to save you. That first moment, you are assured of eternal life, but you do need to know what he's calling to you to for however long you have here on this earth. He calls you to follow him. He calls you to strive. He calls you to go, to live a life of repentance. Trust Christ and you will be justified, but know that he is calling you to follow after him for life. Turn to Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Our merciful God, um, thank you for your kindness to us. God, the deeper we go in scripture, the more we learn, the more we read, Lord, the more amazing it all becomes. Lord, this, this gospel, this salvation you designed and purchased and brought about, it's beautiful, it's glorious. And you have our joy in mind. And I pray, God, that we will see this. I pray we'll, we'll see the glory of it and we'll want it. Father, make us a church family that goes hard, that glorifies you, that pleases you. We long to bear fruit and honor you. So God, help us as we leave here to go back to our, our everyday kind of lives. And I pray that we will live as those bearing fruit unto you. Any in the room that has not yet trusted Christ, please, O oh God, don't leave them alone until they come to you. Please bless us, O oh God. We pray these things through the name of Christ. Amen. Lord bless you. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed and were deeply affected by this week's message titled, The Necessity of Sanctification. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.